This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we have David Bedil, the writer and comedian and author of the new book, Jews Don't Count. And in conversation with Armando Iannucci, they discuss why in an era of heightened awareness about protecting minorities, Jews are often left out of the conversation or seen as not deserving or needing protection. It's a really fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for David's book in the podcast description. But before we go to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Climate Solutions from our partners at the European Investment Bank. What would you give up to solve the climate crisis? Well, the EIB surveyed 30,000 people in every EU country, China, the US and the UK to find out what they're ready to do to fight climate change. The team at Climate Solutions then spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. To find out more and subscribe to this podcast, visit eib.org slash podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go to the episode. It's a privilege to be asked along here. Two comedy writers discussing anti-Semitism. What can possibly go wrong? So our, <laughs> our hero for tonight, I mean, you know him. If, if we weren't doing this in our rooms, no doubt we'd be doing this live in some massive stadium. I knew him from... When did we do the Mary Whitehouse experience? Over 30 years ago. Yes. And yet it's still considered cutting edge. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, David Bedell has uh, done stand-up. He's had a number one hit. He's written novels and uh, children's books that have sold over a million copies. And in all the time I've known him, he's he's been very funny. But also I'd say his comedy is very forensic. It's unafraid to look at difficult issues but it's also very personal sometimes deliberately embarrassingly so as well you're not afraid to look at how things affect you emotionally and and in biographically um so first of all i'd just like to say welcome along 
I very much enjoyed your book. I'm not Jewish, but I found it, as Hannah said, a very, it's come at the right moment, I feel. I have very good Twitter followers, but whenever I mention anti-Semitism on Twitter, that's the time I get very hostile responses. We can go into that later. And I'm at a loss as to why that is the case, particularly with anti-Semitism as opposed to other types of prejudice and discrimination. Now, your book, it's fair to say, is not an assault on the whole of anti-Semitism across the board. It's very, very focused on what you call the maybe the kind of the downgrading of anti-Semitism in amongst the sake of argument, the progressive or the progressive left. Is that is that a kind of accurate assessment? of? Yeah, uh, the book is, yeah, specifically, I mean, there are many histories of anti-Semitism, and this is certainly not that. If you look, I have over there Simon Sharma's History of Anti-Semitism, and it's this big because there's been a lot of it over history. And that's important in a way because, although this book is very targeted, one thing it says is for those people who, to use the phrase that is sometimes used, consider themselves on the right side of history, and that would, in a very yeah. general way sum up I think the sort of intellectual and moral project of the people that this book is addressed to that my contention is that they've somewhat forgotten the history that very large and dangerous history of anti-semitism and in so doing you know particularly over the last sort of 20-30 years and with the growth of social media which is very important in the whole thing there's been this massive intensification of concern about you know, racism and other isms, all forms of identity politics, all forms of concern about minorities, both from the minorities, but also uh, from like spokespeople, from allies, as we would call them, to that minority. That's that's intensified over the last 20, 30 years, except I would say as regards to Jews and regards to anti-Semitism. There seems to have been a neglect of that concern and with it of representation and of visibility of Jews and of anti-Semitism within it. To put it more simply, Sarah Silverman, who's been really nice about my book and has talked about it on her podcast, what she said is that she herself considers herself to be an ally of many minorities, and not just ethnic ones of, you know, disabled people and gay people and trans people or whatever. She considers herself an ally, but she looks around for Jewish allies amongst non-Jews, and they don't seem to be there. And so it's really an address to them and to that neglect. Well, first of all, historically, do you think people have just forgotten about why... Do you think people have forgotten the Second World War? I mean, have people forgotten about the significance of... No, I don't don't think so. Uh, Although I think that down the road from the in the reasons for why this has happened there's certainly something that you might call holocaust fatigue uh, and a sense that yeah yeah we know about that and it's kind of like not interesting to us anymore and let's talk about other things which sometimes is very reasonable to do uh, but nonetheless the idea that we can sort of park that is i think a misnomer but i think That is down the road, because I think the reasons why this neglect has happened, which the book, the book starts off with a a whole series of examples to sort of prove my point that this exists. And then it goes into and digs into why it is that this has happened. And the primary reason, which some people may have heard me say before, and I don't think I'm the first person to say this, is that Jews are associated still, and this is not a this is not in itself a progressive thing. This comes from the protocols of the elders of Zion and years and years of sort of mythic far right antagonism towards Jews. But Jews are associated with privilege and power and control and secret, uh, you know, control of governments and all the rest of it. And as 
racism, that's a weird thing because Jews are the only race, the only minority that get this double-edged racism which presents them as low status, as vermin or insects or alien or whatever, but also as high status, as controlling and privileged and powerful. So Jews are once subhuman and sort of superhuman, but in a monstrous, evil way. And that notion has always put Jews in a slightly weird position as regards what I call in the book the sacred circle of minorities that the progressive left would care about. Because if you are perhaps privileged and powerful and all the things that racist mythology would say you are, you can't really exist in that minority. In fact, you might even be the hand of the oppressor causing you know the problems to all those other minorities which is where you get into that mural uh, that Jeremy yes. Corwood supported and all the other notions of you know where, where somehow the hand of capitalism playing monopoly on the backs of the world's poor blurs weirdly into the Jewish face uh, but there's lots of other reasons as well which I talk about in the book and maybe we can get onto some of those as well but that is yeah. the I always think that's the base reason is that weird split high and low status racism that only really applies to Jews. And also the, there is the, the question of, is, is, is it about race or is it about religion? And in fact, you argue it's, it's always a bit of both. It's an element of both. Well, I don't it's, actually, it's, I, well, I mentioned, I don't actually completely agree with that. I mean, I, I don't think religion isn't unimportant historically and certainly not in medieval times. But my contention is very strongly that the bringing up of religion is something that uh, racists or people keen to play down racism against Jews often do in order to downgrade racism against Jews to not really racism at all, to religious intolerance. And my answer to that is always, well, I'm an atheist, that would not have got me a free pass out of Auschwitz, saying to the SS, you don't understand, I don't even keep kosher, that they wouldn't have said, oh, well, there's the exit, fine, bye, Mr. Badil. They wouldn't have said that. And my point is that that's why it's racism, because it's not a choice. It's not. I often get told that on by the nice people on Twitter who, despite their... like, One of the things I point out in the book is that there are certain articles of faith faith that you could say that progressives hold and one of them would be that if a victim of racism talks about racism you give them space and time you don't challenge them they have the final say on what that racism is that is not the case when a jew talks about anti-semitism and so one of the things that very progressive people with you know whatever very socialist symbols on their avatar will tell me is no it's just religious intolerance and blah 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 and i will say well i'm not religious I'm not a religious, but and in fact, most Jews aren't. And certainly, most Jews in Britain are secular, and that bears no. And it's not just the Nazis, like white supremacists in America chanting, "The Jews will not replace us." They too will not ask whether you keep kosher before they set light to your house. And that point that it is essentially just about blood, just about you know the finding out of what your original surname was or whatever it might be. Point makes anti-Semitism exactly the same, essentially, as having the wrong colour skin. That Charlottesville example you gave of the, uh, the, the was it the Proud Boys or yeah, I think it was the Proud Boys, that. and they're holding tiki lamps and chanting, "The Jews will not replace us." Yes, that's the point where I thought I've no idea what this is about because I had not heard that phrase at all. Do you, do you know what you, it's I about just, now? I I now know what it's about. It's about this bizarre conspiracy theory about the replacement with yeah well actually uh tucker carlson 
just yeah. basically subscribed to it the other day. And which and interestingly, the person who's most called him out for it is the head of the Anti-Defamation League in America, which is, you know, a Jewish organisation that fights anti-Semitism. And it's weird in a way, because I think people don't, often understand how much white supremacism, which I would say with Black Lives Matter, all the rest of it is seen obviously correctly uh, as an anti-black or anti-brown thing, how much it also targets Jews. And one way in which it targets Jews is by this very, very held by many people, not just mad people. I mean, obviously they are kind of mad, but not just obviously mad people, which is that the, which is a multiculturalism itself. mad people. Yeah, (laughs) a multiculturalism itself is being sort of masterminded secretly by Jews in order to undermine the Aryan white races. So that's what they mean by the Jews will not replace us. They don't mean that we're going to be replaced by Jews. They mean that Jews are shipping in, as it were, brown and black people from Syria, wherever it might be, in order to undermine the white races. And there you can see it, what I was just talking about, which is that you know, brown and black people in that are not themselves the masterminds of this multiculturalism. The Jews have somehow become the masterminds of this sort of evil plot because of this weird notion that Jews are puppet masters. Yes, and I, and I think because that is so mad, I think there is always a temptation to think, therefore, it's unreal, you know, that not to take it seriously because it's so crazy. And you know what the problem with that is, because we all thought the same about Donald Trump, that he would never become president because it was just too ridiculous to... Uh, but I kind of also want to bring... I mean, the book opens with a, a series of increasingly powerful examples of of personal experiences of anti-Semitism that are very current. Whether it's something as small as you noticing that Radio 4 would read out a T.S. Eliot poem where there are very racial uh, anti-Semitic references to Jews and argue that, you know, if this was a racial, if this was about black or other ethnic minorities, it would just be cut, whereas Radio 4 just did a small explanation at the top. Uh, Building up to your experience at a football match. Yeah. Well, I mean, so one of the things that the book starts with about, yeah, 10 examples of of what I'm talking about. And it needs to be clear, I think, that what I'm talking about in each case is not the thing in itself, though the things do vary from what you might call microaggression to very macroaggression, but it's more the neglect of concern about that thing. So with the Radio 4 thing, which was in 2017, they read all of T.S. Eliot's poetry, and that includes the line from Blystein with a Baydaker, the rats are underneath the piles, the Jew is underneath the lot. And Jeremy Irons read that out in a very sonorous, this is great poetry way. And my point is not so much that that was read out and it's not definitely not that T.S. Eliot was an anti-Semite because that's not new information it's that that can be read out in 2017 without there being a massive outcry on Twitter or anywhere else and this lack of the outcry is really the thing in each case the football example is when as a result, which I'm not going to go into because it will take too long, but uh, of the whole thing whereby Tottenham are perceived by some people as a Jewish club. I was at Chelsea, which was my, which is my team, and a whole bunch of fans started chanting the Y word with menaces, with Auschwitz stuff, and blah, 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 which happens all, or used, certainly used to happen all the time at Chelsea. And then a man about 10 rows behind me and my brother starts chanting, and I apologise to anyone listening, I'm not going to say the actual racial epithet, but just starts chanting, you know, fuck the Y words, fuck the Y words, and then fuck the Jews, fuck the Jews, over and over again. 
And again, the point is not so much that that happens at a football match, because again, that is not a massive surprise. The, the point is that by 2010, when that happened, the programme at Chelsea included the words, anyone shown to express any form of racial abuse will be banned for life. And there are stewards everywhere sort of watching this and just blanking it. They're not, they don't perceive it as racial abuse. It's not even seen as racial abuse. A man shouting, fuck the Jews, over and over again at me and my brother. But I could read a quick one that in a way sums it up. It's not one of the most extreme ones, but it still, I think, encompasses it. Sometimes you hear what I'm talking about out loud. The major BBC current affairs show, the one that sets the news agenda every morning, is the Today programme on Radio 4. It's a must-listen for those interested in politics and a must-react to. If something controversial is said on Today, Twitter is set alight and the conversation explodes. On the 13th of March 2019, the American pollster John Zogby was on. At one point, he began talking about fissures in the Democratic Party, specifically around the then-new Congresswoman Ilan Omar's views about Israel and its supporters in the US. The interviewer, Justin Webb, who is a regular on Today, said in response, If the party decided to say to its supporters, look, we think that anti-Semitism is a bit like the way some of our people might regard anti-white racism, that actually it's a different order of racism. It's not as important. It's still bad, but it's not as important as some other forms of racism. What impact do you think that might have? It was a strange moment. It felt less like a question and more like a helpful suggestion. Maybe this would be a way forward for the Democrats, was the tone. Webb did not qualify or contextualise it. He did not preface or add, obviously this is offensive to say, but perhaps it's what some people in that party actually think. His tone was neutral. Zogby moved on without really answering. But even if he had, it was the question itself I was struck by. I remember listening and thinking, blimey, it's rare that someone just comes out with it. Anti-Semitism is a second-class racism. I thought it would create controversy. I thought that there would be an intense reaction. There wasn't. Well, that's not true. There was a bit after I managed, following much fiddling about with BBC sounds and recording devices on my computer, to record the question and post it on Twitter, along with a sense of my amazement. Even then, there wasn't much online noise. What noise there was came mainly from Jews. So actually, when I say, sometimes you hear it out loud, what I really heard was the silence. Which is kind of the point that I'm making throughout, that That's right. we live in a time where almost any expression of racism, micro-expression of racism, can be interpreted as a very awful thing to do and people can get obviously deeply cancelled for it, but more importantly, there's a mass reaction to it, except generally when that thing is anti-Semitism. And you explain partly this is because people now regard, and this is massive generalisation of, of their attitude, Jews aren't victims. They are they're white, they're privileged is another example, that, that you're, not, you're not suffering at Yes. Uh, well, that, that comes back to your point about the sort of, you know, the Holocaust being somehow years and years ago rather yeah. than something that happened to my mother, which 
which yeah. it did. My mother was born in Nazi Germany. But the white thing, I think, is very important. And really, that's just a different version of the powerful and privileged thing, but a more modern one. So I use this phrase in the book, which is not my phrase, and I wanted to credit the person, but it's lost in the mists of social media. Someone described Jews as regards the way people see them, in terms of racist terms, as Schrodinger's whites, by which they mean Jews are white or non-white, depending on the politics of the observer. So for white supremacists in the US, Jews are entirely non-white. In fact, I quote from something called Constitution of an Ethno-State, which is one of their Bibles of how their new white Aryan state will be. And like uh, rule five is no Jews will be allowed in the new Ethno-State because they are Asiatic, whatever that means. So it's very clear. And obviously Hitler didn't consider Jews to be white and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, on the progressive side, it seems to me that Jews are almost seen at times as sort of a super white, as sort of having more whiteness because of this power and privilege. And I use this one example uh, of a woman called Jessica Krug, who, like Rachel Dolezal, was someone who was pretending to be a person of black and Latino heritage, and then came out. And when she came out, the newspapers constantly said, oh, it turns out that she's really white and Jewish. And I asked the question, why are they including that information? They're including that information because it makes her somehow even less black, that, she's, yeah. that she pretended to be black, but she was in fact white and Jewish because it's associated with this power and privilege and non-victimisation, as, as in fact you just said. And I suppose it takes... I mean, it's worth looking at the history because you mentioned your, your mother. I mean, uh, and the reason I queried whether people have forgotten about the Second World War and the Holocaust and... Is, is that we regard this as like so last century. And yet, you know, I, I said we, we first met, you know, about 30, 35 years ago. We were, we're roughly the same age. So we would be at school in what, the 70s? That's not that late, much later than the end of the Second World War. That's only what, 30 years later, 20, 25, 30. Well, as you years say, later. The, the, book, the book is a, in its own way, a political tract, but it's also a very personal book. And so one of the things I talk about is how when I was young and I was talking to my grandparents who were survivors, my grandfather was in Dachau, I didn't really get any sense of that and I thought, this is years ago. Then when I was older and they were sadly dead, I thought, no, wait a minute, I was born 19 years after the Second World War. 19 years ago, I was doing... Badil and Skinner Unplanned on telly. It feels to me like yesterday. Yes. It doesn't feel right. like a long, long time ago. William Hague. William Hague was Tory leader. That's, <laughs> was that's, well, that's how long ago. <laughs> that does feel like quite a long time ago, actually. <laughs> Although they haven't changed very much in the type of no. leader that they've come up with. Uh, just more, yeah. more hair. But, I, 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 you know, it really brought home to me how much that trauma and the intensity of that trauma was living when I was, you know, talking to my grandparents. And now I, it's obvious to me. Now it's obvious to me that the way that my mother was damaged as a person is because she was born in Nazi Germany, or a lot of it was to do with that. And so that the passing on of trauma, which is, you know, not just something which happens, as it were, through nurture, it happens apparently genetically as well, is something that simply can't be forgotten and almost every Jewish person who's responded to this book and they have responded to it in a really interesting way has talked about one of the things the book tries to make clear to non-Jews is how frightened Jews continue to be of that they continue to be and I, it's no question I do too I mean to use an example that's in the book 
I try and explain at one point how you can be totally aware that the Tories were weaponising anti-Semitism during the latter time of Corbyn and still be frightened of the anti-Semitism that did exist there. And the example I use is Matt Hancock at one point is struggling at some meeting that he's doing, talking about the NHS, and he's going really badly, and he mentions something about some pay packet for nurses that's derisory, and people start booing or whatever. And so he reaches for anti-Semitism, and it's clear. He reaches for it as a trump card and mentions it. Unfortunately, as soon as he says the words anti-Semitism, people start to boo and stamp their feet, and the bloke gets up and snatches the microphone away from him. And as a Jew, I knew he was, you know, using that in a cynical way. I still felt frightened. It was impossible for me not to see the crowd, the mob, react to the words anti-Semitism in that violent way and not hear the echoes of something really terrible. And that's, I think, what isn't understood, I think, by a lot of progressives. I think that's right. And I think also it's it, it kind of indicates it's not it's not so much about, you know, words, you know, sticks and stones and, and all that, but words kind of it's it's more about behavior and it's about the threat as well. I mean, very vastly completely different uh, experience from from my point of view. I come from a, an Italian immigrant background, but um, I remember my mother telling me that, you know, her treat during the Second World War, her Sunday treat was to go and see her father in an internment camp because he was an Italian national in Glasgow. During the war, all foreign nationals, especially from enemy countries, were rounded up and interned. That was her... So she grew up with a sense of not belonging, do we fit in, Do you know, which uh, made her particularly paranoid in, in certain ways in terms of, you know, don't cause any trouble, but also made me kind of, very conscious of that Italian identity and whether it fitted in. Now, we talked about the 70s. You know, I remember there were Italian jokes in the 70s about us being cowards. You mm. know. My, my trump card was, in fact, my father in Italy, age 16, actually wrote for an anti-fascist newspaper and joined the partisans and, 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 and fought the fascists. But I, I saw that as my, my one kind of... <laughs> golden ticket yeah. out of this <laughs> this uh, assault really but it, it it did remind me how still present that those events are really well they're only several generations away well and we've grown up with them. no absolutely i mean I, i've told you this but it's not it is a secret history i think in british history what you've just mentioned all enemy nationals were interned. My grandfather was interned on the Isle of Man. And what's interesting about that is that that only happened because the British government was suppressing information about the Holocaust because they, well, they basically didn't want people to think they were fighting a war on behalf of the Jews, but also they just didn't believe it. They just had this information about Jews being massacred on the Eastern Front, and they just thought, these are Jews making things up. That's what Jews do. It was essentially anti-Semitism. And as a result, my grandfather, who had just arrived from having his life completely destroyed in Germany, was imprisoned on the Isle of Man for two and a half years. And the press created the hysteria that led to that decision on Churchill's part. And that notion of... I mean, it's, by the way, still the same in terms of other minorities. So migrant hysteria, which would have applied to Italians and Jews or whatever, is still being reproduced now in terms of Syrians or whatever it might be. But but beyond that, in terms of Jews, this sense of like, oh, well, Jews are making up, Jews can't really be believed, Jews are, you know, putting forward something to save their own skin, transfer that 
to me or anyone else saying I'm perceiving anti-Semitism here in the way that progressives are talking and being told, no, that's a smear. That's just something you're making up. You're saying this because really you're a Zionist. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, I mentioned right at the top, the, the only time I've ever had any kind of um, kind of aggression on my Twitter feed is when I have made comments uh, about you know, Corbyn's issue with anti-Semitism, his, his inability to either apologise or to really believe that something had gone terribly wrong in you know, the, the upper echelons of the Labour Party and their approach to it. And, and, and I would get things, I just want to read a couple of the. I don't normally, and I never respond, I never respond to, to Twitter feeds, but I, I, I wanted to keep these because they were so, they were so illustrative of the, of the confusion I still see here, the, the fact that even though you're pointing out anti-Semitism and, and clear examples of it, those who believe it in the progressive left cannot yet bring themselves to accept that there might be a problem there and therefore there has to be some other element behind it. So somebody said um, back to me, I can't help but get the feeling all this anti-Semitism talk is a smokescreen and that there is a hidden agenda, basically saying the Israeli lobby. So it's basically the Jews who are behind it all. Um, Someone in defence outlined all her experiences of anti-Semitism within the party. Someone replied to her saying, your personal anecdotes are not raw data. (laughs) Text in context, or else you've been had by a very evil propaganda lies and smear campaign. Okay. I mean, (laughs) and I remember somebody actually, you know, when the report came out of anti-Semitism saying, no, I know it was the Panorama programme. That's right. And and the 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 official Labour Party's response to that was to malign the people who had made the complaints. Yeah, whistleblowers. Which which is a you know a sure sign that something is very bad has has gone on. I think you said Again, something I, to me when we were talking about yeah. this, uh, which is that I think uh, well, I don't I think this is true of people in general, but it might be truer of people on the left. Which yes. is that the belief? Everyone wants to believe that they are good, and I mean that's yes. a pro- that's a problem. Whoever you are, you know. Remember, don't forget Hitler thought yeah. he was good. No one actually does evil like Doctor Evil. Uh, you know, the worst people in the world are often thinking that they are doing God's work. But I think there is a, a an, an inability for some people on the left to imagine they can possibly be in any way the bad guys. I mean, that's a very yeah. simple. You now, if you imagine, you know, David Mitchell in the Nazi hat saying, hang on a minute, are we the baddies? I mean, in a way, you can sort of imagine a Nazi doing that quicker than you can imagine the people tweeting you (laughs) sort of coming to that conclusion because it just doesn't fit with their mindset that they could possibly be in any way the wrong... And and also there is, when it goes back to your kind of earlier point about it's just not that as as important Mm. as the other prejudices because somebody responded to me saying, would you rather that Corbyn didn't get in and therefore we have a Tory government and children starve. You would prefer children to die. Is that what you want? So again, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, how fitting that the the old trope of child murder comes back in any conversation about anti-Semitism. And that's where I just thought, you know, how, I mean, you res- you actually engage with a, a lot of people on Twitter. Well, so certainly I mean, less than I used to. But yes, I built a show to some extent out of it, I, which has presently been furloughed, but which is theoretically happening in September called Trolls, yeah. Not the Dolls, which is about rage and madness and also about the way that people project identity in a very particular way. 
I, I have this belief that outrage confirms identity. That's something, that's one reason why we live in the culture that we do now, whereby suddenly, you know, Twitter is not a marketplace of ideas, it's a marketplace of identity. And one way that you can turn the volume up on your identity is through anger. And that's why a lot of people prefer, like, rage as their primary way of being on Twitter, because it's a way of saying, this is me, in a Babel, that makes it very difficult for you to be heard otherwise. And I, I yeah, and so I, for a while I was choosing to be, like, a essentially a comedian who thinks, yeah. OK, these are hecklers abusing me out of the darkness. And as a comedian, I wouldn't ignore those. I would choose to, you know, try and make it funny. But... I do think, and this is a whole other dis- discussion, really, but an interesting one, that there is an industrialization of hate on social media, yeah. which sometimes seems spontaneous, and sometimes I think, no, it's not spontaneous. There are very complicated forces at work. You know, like All those things you read out might be from just people, or they might be from someone who's working for Putin and has 17 different names and who is just trying to create... Because anti-Semitism is a big one for that. It's got, like, in its weird history, anti-Semitism has always been a fabulous resource for people who just want to create unease and suspicion and a sense that there are people around you who you can't be trusted. I mean, obviously... That goes back centuries, but now you see it on social media. I mean, someone told me this thing, which, you know, may... Well, he, he's a guy who, res- who researches how social media accounts are used for political advantages. And someone told me that there was one very anti-Semitic account that acquired, like, 40,000 followers just through pumping out hate about Jews. This is a time when, I mean, you know, basically Twitter is still not very good at policing that stuff, but didn't police it at all. And you might think, okay, that's just a racist account. But then apparently a few months before Brexit, it just started telling its supporters to vote for Brexit. Now, I'm not in any way saying that everyone who voted Leave is an anti-Semite. But I am saying that that was a political account that thought, right, I will harness a certain type of person who I can then impart this message to. And so it it is often used, anti-Semitism, as that kind of, you know, resource. So I don't, all I'm saying is, who knows who those people were who were shouting at you about it. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv well you mentioned that social media i mean there's good aspects of social media and bad good do you think that you know has the benefit of everyone being able to kind of utter their you know darkest thoughts on social media has that has that contributed to the return in a big way of anti-Semitism. Yeah, uh, or, or is it just that social media is is recording something yeah. that has always been there, but now we can we now we can see for ourselves. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a question 
the continue you know a chicken and egg question yeah. which i think is fair enough because i think that it's hard to know with all forms of extremism if it just exists or whether or not twitter so so whether or not twitter is exposing it or mobilizing it and i think it does yeah. both to be honest i think mass communication was never meant to be this massive you know we we didn't yeah. we didn't evolve to know and speak to this many people and i think the sad truth is that this level of speed of communication of ideas and a lot of bad ideas will lead it it appears to conspiracy theory in particular you know and fake news and all the rest of it tearing down truth tearing down facts and lots and lots of people starting to buy into things which probably 40 or certainly even 20 years ago you'd just never really hear about it i mean holocaust denial one reason why i did that documentary about holocaust denial is that i realized through being on twitter oh it's becoming normalized this thing that was incredibly kind of underground and sort of like you wouldn't see holocaust denial like you wouldn't see child abuse you know what i mean like it's like a horrible underground thing suddenly it's there like people are talking and they've got whole websites and pseudo-scientific stuff for it and so the, the, the that made me think oh, this has to be challenged because ignoring it doesn't seem to be working so i think the truth is that i once saw an american comedian begin his set i sadly can't remember his name by saying i blame the jews it's quicker that way and, and, and i think the truth is that the world is going to hell in many ways. I mean, it always is, maybe. But what we have now is an ability for people to say, this is why the world's going to hell. I know why the world's going to hell. And unfortunately, the, that seems to always be, it's the Jew, or not always, but a lot of the time the answer is, it's the Jews. And social media provides a way of that being said over and over and over again until it is kind of like normalised. Yes, I remember somebody rather depressingly describing social media, you know, when it, when it started, saying... You know, imagine you're in a very, very kind of, uh, you know, concentrated area of housing. You know, you're in a massive block of flats. Normally, you know, you've no idea what all the other people are like. You, you meet one or two of them, but you've no idea. Now on social media, you can hear everything that yeah. they're saying. Yeah. And that's the scary thing. No, it is. Because <laughs> you know that someone with very scary views is like two floors up. Or, and, uh, and, but I think, I think now social media, as you say, is more than that. It's not just giving us a sort of cross-section of what people are thinking i think it's actually manipulating what people are thinking so that they can gravitate towards these more and more you know click worthy and attention grabbing headlines yeah i mean that's um, i mean I, in a way to come back to the book yeah you know yeah. The, the 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 book is about progressives it's a sort of aimed at progressives and it's a critique of progressives but at the same time the beating drum and the loud and the the loudening, if that's a word, beating drum of far right anti-Semitism. The fact that in you know 2018, 11 Jews were killed in Pittsburgh by someone who believes in the Great Replacement theory. That my point is really, I'm criticising you for your neglect because you're not looking at this. You're sort of pretending that this has gone away because the Holocaust was a long time ago, but actually. If you if you look at what's out there and you look at threats, and in fact, hate crime towards Jews is higher than it's ever been, and indeed they are the most targeted ethnic group for hate crime, you know, that's you need to keep an eye on this, is what I'm sort of saying. And, and one thing that, that is important in all that, to come back to the power and privilege thing, 
is that I think we think about racism a lot and or inequity in, in our society just in terms of overall macroeconomic structure. So at the moment, when, when we talk about structural racism, the notion is, which is correct, that there is less economic opportunity for certain ethnic minorities. Now, because there's a notion that Jews are rich and powerful and privileged, which, by the way, the data doesn't particularly support, no more than any other ethnic minorities, but the notion is that, well, so they're okay in those terms. And I make the point in the book that racism is more complicated than just pure economics. That, you know, if you're to say, well, we don't, they're fine, because essentially we don't register them on this data of economic inopportunity, then what about the, the 11 Jews who were killed in Pittsburgh? Are you not bothered about them because they were probably middle income? And the example I use coming back to me personally is my grandparents were, in fact, wealthy. They were wealthy in Germany. They lived in a big house. They owned a brick factory. I believe they had servants. And by 1939, most of their family had been murdered and they had nothing in the space of a few years. And so my point is money doesn't protect you from racism. And just saying, essentially, to really boil it down, but Jews have got money and so we don't really have to worry about them is A, wrong and B, deeply ahistorical. Yeah, and also, you know, highlights, you know, the point you've been making throughout that that the reason we so-called liberals or progressives or, or on the left have this very visceral reaction towards prejudice is because actually it's more than about economics. It's about, it's about you know, human life and... Yes. It's it's something you can't put a value on, and 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 if you are genuinely saying we're all in this together, you know, for the many and not the few, then you have to be inclusive, and inclusivity means everyone. Yeah, really. Yeah, you know, you can't discriminate on the basis of whether they're wealthy or rich or poor, or whether they're nice or not nice, or whether they're. No, know. absolutely, but I think yeah. that's a really good point because I think what has often been forgotten in this whole conversation is the actual lives, the individual lives of the individual Jews concerned. That's partly why I made the book so personal, because what I noticed was, from the left particularly, was that as this argument started to get more and more heated, there was a complete disavowal of sort of actual racism against actual people for, as it were, politics. So that by the time... Jeremy Corbyn is suspended on the 20th of October 2020 for his reaction to the ERHC report. What I notice is that doesn't become in any way, oh, I see, right, so all this anti-Semitism, maybe it had a point. No, it becomes, oh, this is an attack on the left. So the left immediately yeah. say it's an attack on the left. They say that Keir Starmer refusing to reinstate Corbyn as member of the Labour Party because, in his own words, I want to build bridges with the Jewish community is an attack on the left. Right? And as a Jew, that's so weird, particularly as a left-wing Jew from a left-wing household. The idea that someone r trying to say, I am reaching out to an ethnic minority to try and repair some of the hurt and damage that might have been caused to individual lives over the course of the last five years, that's right-wing behaving like that. Is so, it feels so weird. It feels bizarre. But that's exactly how it was interpreted. And of course, it's convenient for the right to to employ it as a, as a, as an argument against Corbyn and against the Labour Party, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's my point. Is, is that it becomes just about that? It becomes yeah. bifurcated along political lines, and then one as an actual Jew with an actual life that is actually affected by this. You just think like, okay, so is this about me at all, or is it just a fight between right and left in which the word Jew keeps on cropping up? Ah, the word. I want to uh, I want to talk about comedy in a, in a minute, but. 
there's a question that's coming that, that takes us on to the to the word Jew, actually, that I'll, I'll read out. I haven't given their name. Why do the media and politicians always talk about Jewish people and not Jews? Isn't it because the word Jew is customarily used pejoratively in the UK and that people are uncomfortable about using it? And isn't that evidence of the constant underlying harm of anti-Semitism in this country? I had a discussion with a cousin of mine who's much more involved in Jewish life than I am. She was horrified at the idea of using the word Jew. I think Jew, Jew is your... Um, in your, on your Twitter bio. Yes, it was always my down. Twitter bio for almost entirely that reason, which is, well, A, it was funny. It's funny. That's my primary reason. B, it's short. And C, a long way down the list, it is a type of reclamation. But it's an interesting type of reclamation. I do talk about this in the book. I actually uh, take the liberty of quoting from another of my books, the one about uh, internment on the Isle of Man, which is called The Secret Purposes. And in that novel, at one point, a German a Nazi, who is, because there were some Nazis in Britain in 1940, is on the Isle of Man and she's being interviewed by a translator, an English translator, and she uses the word you didn't. And the English translator translates that as Jewess. And uh, her sentence is, I, I would not want to share my quarters with you didn't. And she realises that Jewess doesn't work, that it's too biblical, it doesn't sound right. And she wants to get the contempt that this woman, this Nazi, is saying into her English translation. And then she realises the way to do that is not to say, I don't want to share my quarters with Jewish women, but to say, I don't want to share my quarters with Jew women. And it's incredible. There is no other word in English where you can just lose the suffix-ish and the word can change its whole moral colour immediately. I mean, listen to it. Jewish boy, Jew boy. Jewish banker, Jew banker. I mean, it's a really extraordinary thing. And what I think it proves is that there is, and the questioner is right, there is a deep structural racism towards Jews, but it goes back a long way further. It goes back into Judeo-Christian culture, whereby, you know, the word itself has got a toxic energy, because it's the only word... When another ethnic minority wants to reclaim a bad word, that bad word tends to be slang. I mean, it is slang. It's always slang, and it's been imposed on them by the majority culture, and they've reclaimed it. Jew is not slang. It's actually in the OED, it's what I am. And so, therefore, it's got a much deeper toxicity in a way than those in those obvious insulting slang words and so people do dance about it a lot but i always say to non-jews please use the word jew don't don't say oh jewish people or whatever i mean say it if you want but i'm very happy with people referring to no, that's interesting because i have felt uncomfortable i've not quite known what when is the right time to say the word jew and and when it's when it would make someone uncomfortable. And yet you don't want your own, the name of your own <laughs> identity to become the J word. Yeah. I mean, that's no, the last thing no, you that, want, No, it? that is wrong. Yeah. That's definitely wrong. Yeah. And the Y word, which is, I'm going to say it, it's the word yid. And I mean, I used, yeah. I, I, when I made a short film in 2020 for Kick Racism Out of Football, which, by the way, you know, took a long time to get made and involved trying to convince Kick Racism out of football that this racism actually existed and all the rest of it. But it was because that word was being chanted, and that word is a slang word that was used by Mosley and lots of other anti-Semites. And so I'm trying to make it clear that, you know, the saying of that word should perhaps be seen in the same way if we're going to have a level playing field of offence as other offensive words. I do tell a story yes. which I'm surprised hasn't been picked up more, which I'm going to tell now, uh, if I might. Uh, because on. Particularly because he's very much in the news at the moment. So, Is it Prince Philip? <laughs> 
<laughs> in some ways, I wish it was. No, it's David Cameron. Uh, All right, okay. <laughs> so, so, so David Cameron, when I'd made that film, David Cameron, who pretended to be very interested in football, but I don't think was really, was asked, oh, oh what do you think about this? He, he said, I think it's perfectly fine for Spurs fans to call themselves yids, right? So I made the point that it would be very unlikely in an, any kind of interview for David Cameron in 2015 to use any kind of ethnic epithet, epithet of a minority at all. He just wouldn't let it pass his lips, but he was entirely happy with that one. And then an extraordinary thing happened, which was I was on The Agenda, which was a programme on ITV that Tom Bradbury used to host. And David Cameron was on, and I'm in the green room, and he just came up to me, like bustled into the green room, and said, are we going to talk about the Yid thing? And I said, I don't, I don't know. It's up to Tom Bradbury. And he, and he said, well, I've had a word with my advisors, and they've said Badil's right. Badil's right about the Yid thing. And I wanted to say, yeah, if I'm right about it, you really shouldn't be saying it anymore. Stop <laughs> saying it. So, but it is, it is, it's funny, but it is another example of how a progressive, which I would include him, in my progressive isn't just the Labour Party. It's kind of anyone who cares about that stuff. And he legalised gay marriage and, you know, good luck to him. Great thing to do. But nonetheless, he's obviously influenced by progressive ideals. And yet it wouldn't occur to him that maybe I shouldn't be using this word in front of a Jew. Well, I think that goes back to the fact that, you know, I started by saying a lot of people think, haven't we, have we sorted all this out? Yes. Wasn't this all resolved by the end of the Second World War? The, you know, the creation of the State of Israel, uh, the I word, <laughs> comes up in all these conversations. Uh, you know, uh, and, and my surprise that, no, it's still there. That's the thing that kind of really shocked me, I, I think, you know, especially in the last four, five well, I think one years. of the things, Armando, is, yeah. and the book is, as you say, we sort of started with this, and we should probably get some questions before we have to yeah. go, but is... You know, far-right anti-Semitism is what I think people think has been sorted out, and it totally hasn't. But I think as well, the reason that the book is not about far-right anti-Semitism, except in the sense of it being there in the background, is that far-right anti-Semitism requires no deconstruction. It's people saying, we hate Jews, we want to kill them. And you don't have to deconstruct that. You just have to be careful and avoid it and run away from it or whatever, challenge it. But this type of anti-Semitism that I'm talking about in the book it's often very blind and not spotted and people can't see it. And even, you know, I don't, you know, Jeremy Corbyn in my own, the way I describe him when he's supporting that mural, I don't think he's in his own mind being anti-Semitic. I think he's just being in his own mind anti-capitalist and, you know, against these people who are playing Monopoly in the backs of the world's poor. He just doesn't see that they look like Jews and they're clearly being presented as Jews. And two of them are Jews. Warburg and Rothschild are two of the people in it. And they're, they're the only ones named by the artist. And it is that thing of people slip into thinking that it's almost like a competition, I think is the phrase that you use, that there, there are certain prejudices that are much more of a priority than others. And therefore, you know, you know, we just we, we can only pick one or two yeah. at the moment. Whereas, in fact, you know, prejudice is about, you know, dislike of a human being for some aspect over which they have no control and which doesn't in any way change who they are. Yes. And yet somehow irrationally you marginalize them. Yeah. You know, and that's a kind of that's a kind of universal approach and universal behaviour, really. Okay, well, let's do some questions. I do want to talk about comedy, though. Oh, yeah, well, I'm happy in, to talk about comedy. I mean, look, I'm no, happy just, just to talk to you, but we do have yeah. people asking us questions. I know. Okay, well, here we go. What do you, Bedil, perceive to be the consequence of anti-Jewish racism in the 21st century, particularly the microaggressions you mentioned? Do you perceive there to be some institutionalised disadvantage 
to the average Jewish person as a result? Or is the concern more about the risk of a major event, mob violent events? Thinking in the context of the Whitewash Sewell report and whether something similar is required here. And that's from Shea in West London. Well, it's interesting, um, it's interesting that the, the, the Sewell report, which was about racism, didn't have anyone Jewish involved and didn't mention Jews at all because of an assumption that there is no problem there. Again, your point again, that surely we don't have that problem. I, I also noticed something else, which was people were furious about the Sewell report and no doubt correctly, but a very similar report, the Chakrabarti report, which was into institutionalised racism in the Labour Party, said there was no institutionalised racism in the Labour Party. And yeah. those people who were furious about the Sewell report were not furious about that at all. And they're probably more or less the same people. I do think that, and I should be clear about this, and if you read the book, I am clear about this, all racisms are not the same. All racisms need to be faced and there shouldn't be this hierarchy, but all racisms operate differently. I mean, so there are relationships, but they're not all the same. And I don't believe that there is exactly the same, certainly, structural racism in terms of social opportunity that does affect people of colour. I don't think it's the same for Jewish people. But what is the, is the same, and, and in some cases worse, is the targeting of Jews for violence, which uh, happened. I mean, I could read it in here, but I won't. It takes a long time. I mean, it's very depressing, but I've, there's a, you can find a list of hate crimes against Jews put out by the EU, and it's incredible. I mean, and also it's extraordinary how much it comes from all sides. So there's a lot of far-right anti-Semitism. There also is a lot of Islamist anti-Semitism, of course. But then there are things like the Yellow Vest protests in France. So the Yellow Vest protests in France, which happened, you remember, I think in 2019. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And they began yeah, as, this, the uh, as this big, it was pre-pandemic, I think, uh, as this yeah, big anti-Macron yeah. thing. And it was about tax. And you know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure entirely what it was about. It was about, yes, it was about tax and pension rights. Yes. Uh, but it became yeah. like a popular movement and whatever. Yeah. Suddenly, in the middle of that, there was graffiti and chanting and two or three Jewish people who were just noticed to be Jewish got attacked during the Yellow Vest protest and Macron was called a Jewish whore and within like a few hours essentially of this anti-establishment protest starting you got that weird thing whereby anti-establishment blurs into anti-semitism because of a notion that the Jews are the establishment or that Jews own the establishment or whatever and I, to answer that person's question, I don't know exactly what needs to be done beyond education, you know, beyond people understanding this and being able to spot it and know it. Because I don't know, I'm not a legislator, the way out of it. I don't know the way out of anything, really. I'm just a no. bloke <laughs> writing about what he sees. But I do think that the insidious nature of anti-Semitism is something that's sometimes quite difficult to spot, certainly for people saying, no, but there's these other much more important racism. And I think, like, well, yeah, there are, but maybe you just can't see this one. Well, there's a question here. Someone says, how, how best to go about recommending to a, a progressive and member of the Labour Party, friend of his who find, or her, who finds it very easy still to dismiss not just Margaret Hodge, but dismiss her in this way, Margaret Hodge and her cronies. I, I took issue with the comment, but an education would be helpful. So that's a very specific, you know. I mean, I, you know... <laughs> it's difficult sometimes because you can get into a point where, you know, constantly, uh, uh, you know, looking at this stuff as uh, like literary criticism can feel like, <laughs> yes. is it real or not? But I would 
agree that the use of the word cronies there implies something like cabal, certainly implies that she has all these friends, and who are these friends? And I think if you ask that Labour Party friend, <laughs> say, OK, who, who do you think Margaret Hodge's cronies are? I'm guessing they're all going to be Jewish, right? Uh, And once you have a notion of, like, a group of Jews all acting to the same political purpose, then it's a cabal. Well, let's get on to the comedy thing. Just, I mean, time's language has changed and uh, we're much more, I think, sensitive to the sort of nuances of words and racial epithets and so on. You know, I said we grew up in the 70s when, you know, at school there would be Irish jokes, I seem to remember. Lots mm. of Irish jokes. Dave Allen was on the television doing... Yeah, although Irish Dave jokes. Allen is a good example, isn't it? Because I would say yeah. Dave Allen's Irish jokes would probably mainly be acceptable now because he's Irish and yeah. I think, not all of them, but I think mainly they were storytelling or whatever. They weren't Bernard Manning saying yeah. essentially Irish people are thick. Yeah, yeah. Do but do you do you find that you know in your comedy now you are being more? This is to do with the whole issue of identity and language, and you know, you're much more. Do you feel restricted, or do you feel you've just changed in terms of how you write, or what you can and can't say, or don't want to say? Do, do I think it's a bit of both. Kind of, yeah. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I am of the opinion, and I'm sure you are too that there is no subject matter that is off limits to comedy. But I am also of the opinion that some jokes are unacceptable. But that is not to do with the subject matter, that's to do with the individual joke. Uh, So, for example, I don't want to tell the joke, but there was a week in which a politician, I can't remember who it was now, uh, was on this week, the Andrew Neil programme, and she told a joke, essentially a Holocaust joke, about Jews. And it was a really horrible joke, and she got kind of castigated for it. And it, and Andrew Neil took from that, so you can't make jokes about this, right? But let me tell you a joke, which is, in fact, a joke I do in my uh, show, as an example of how a joke about that subject, or indeed any subject, can have humanity in it. Uh, it just depends on the joke rather than the subject matter. So the joke is this. After the war, a Holocaust survivor dies of natural causes, having been in the concentration camps. He dies, he goes to heaven. When he gets there, God says to him, tell me a Holocaust joke. So the survivor does. And God says, that's not funny. And the survivor says, well, I guess you had to be there. Right. Uh, what I love about that joke is, it, I think it's beautiful because it's funny, but it also says something very profound, which is if you believe yeah. in God, which I, as it happens, don't. But if you do, his absence from the world might be figured in the years 1939 to 45. Yeah, And it's clearly not offensive, that joke. And there are other jokes you could tell that say the uh, same yeah, thing, but you have to deconstruct com- almost every joke yeah. now, which maybe you didn't yeah, do yeah, 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 20 years and ago. And also, I think it's slightly better coming you saying it than than maybe me saying it yeah okay i mean yeah. maybe it does i mean i also don't believe that this, this is becoming more and more difficult now i don't believe that you have to be of the ethnic no, minority no, no. concerned no. to tell a joke if the joke is as i say one that when you break it down it's not an inhuman joke but i think you're absolutely right it's the quality of the joke in the end isn't it you yeah know, that's that's where these things rise and fall and i think there's a tendency for a lot of right-wing controversialists or people like Trump and so on to try and excuse something outrageous they've said by saying, I was just being, I was just telling a joke. Yes. You know, I was being sarcastic. 
you know, I was. Just, <laughs> yeah, in Trump's case, you know, in Trump's case, that's like a seven-year-old when he said like the disinfectant thing. I was being sarcastic. Like, being sarcastic. Clearly, why no. weren't you doing a sarcastic voice, Donald? <laughs> Good people on both sides. That yeah. was a joke. Yeah. Clearly, clearly, yeah. clearly. I was just, you know, yeah. don't know what I was doing. Uh, I got carried away with the moment, you know. Yeah, but no, you're uh, right. There, there. I don't agree. I mean, I you know, there, it's no question that, and I think I'm sure you feel the same that I probably didn't think about it as much in the past. And as time has gone on, I've thought about it more, but I haven't changed my basic commitment to comedy, which is, I do think comedy can deal with almost any subject, but that it's, you know, with any subject, whether it be the Holocaust or whether it be racism or whether it be cancer or any of these really, you know, appalling subjects, you could tell a joke that is mean and horrible and mean-spirited and attacks someone in a bad way, or you can tell a joke that makes people feel less alone, or you can make a joke that satirises the people responsible for that cruelty, or whatever it might be. But you have to look at the joke to do that. Yeah, I had to have a lot of this kind of conversation when I was doing The Death of Stalin, and people yes. saying, well, you know, a lot of people got killed. Millions died under Stalin and the Gulags. You know, is it wrong to... To which my response is, you know... A subject isn't belittled by being made the subject of comedy. It's just comedy allows you a surprising way into it, maybe a slightly different perspective. Into no, it. Undeniably, that's the case. But also, when terrible things happen, quite a lot of the time there is absurdity. I mean, there's always yes. absurdity. I mean, I actually, I don't love Life is Beautiful, the film, but I do think it has moments of great art in it where the the idea that that father is lying to the son about what's going on and starts painting a picture. At one point, the son says, they say they're making us into soap. And he says, well, that's a joke. And actually, that's very clever because at some level you think it should be a joke. It should not be true. It should only be the most ridiculous thing. Well, talking to people who'd grown up in Stalin, they said, they explained that, um, you know, at, at, at the worst moments of the terror, people were circulating joke books yeah. about Stalin, you know, which they could be shot if, if they were found in possession of them. But they said the only way to process it was through the absurdity of it, that actually it was so absurd what was going on that it couldn't not be a joke. Well, and also I think that... Mm. You know, demagogues in particular, I, I mean, I do a bit about this in, in this show, are yeah. in general clowns. It's a weird thing. They're very rarely comedians. They're often clowns. I mean, Hitler, you know, quite clearly, like, it's the most absurd oh, character. Yeah. I mean, like, how on earth did anyone not think he's ridiculous? And the same Mussolini. with Trump. Pardon? Mussolini. Mussolini. I mean, Mussolini is so ridiculous. Complete idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I mean Stalin, Stalin innately slightly less so, but yeah. I think by the time, as in your film, people are, doctors are too frightened to go in and tend to him in case they get it wrong and are immediately shot. That's a funny situation. It's very blackly funny, but it's obviously a funny situation. Well, we've actually, we've run over. Have we? Heavens. Okay. We've run over. Thank you very much. I've really, I mean, obviously we could gas on for another kind of two or three hours. I would recommend the book. As Hannah said at the start, it's very short, but it's um, it's quite passionate and, and, and rather like your wonderful documentary on Holocaust denial, which I don't know if it's still up on. The no, iPlayer. it's just gone off. They've repeated it on February, but it's not on iPlayer anymore. But you might be able to find it somewhere. I don't know. On the, I mean, there's a gloriously awful moment where you sit and have to listen to someone who, who's saying it, telling 
singing a funny song about the fact that there wasn't a Holocaust. Well, I, I don't know if he uh, thought it was funny. Well, <laughs> I, I think he thought it was a great Bob Dylan-like protest song yeah. about that. What exactly was going through your mind as you sat and listened to that? Uh, uh, what I thought was, please don't let this become an earworm. I really don't want to be woken up at four o'clock in the morning hearing this song over and over again. Oh, God. <laughs> Anyway, Armando, right. it's been an absolute Thank pleasure. Thank you very much. That's been great. Thank you. Uh, and thanks just to, to thanks everyone people, uh, Intelligence want... Squared and everyone for listening. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.